Welcome to Blind Shovel, an arts and music podcast. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with printmaker and painter Panayotis Terzis. Enjoy. How you doing? I'm doing all right. What'd you work on today? Today, I I was working a little bit on some drawings for some new kind of small paintings, and I was trying to trying to redraw some drawings of these faces. That um, you know, I'm, I'm always I'm always kind of drawing faces. So I was working on some uh, working up these drawings into more finished drawings that I can then transfer onto some small canvases I got a hold of. Um, and it's a very short studio day, and then I just decided to to walk home to just kind of get some sun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How long have you been drawing these geometric faces? I mean, honestly, probably probably like since I was in high school. I just remember compulsively drawing faces, and I don't know. I just have memories of uh, just making these doodles. And, you know, seeing, seeing how I can put together a face with, with different shapes and sort of pushing, you know, pushing the, the ridiculousness of it. You know, um, I, I haven't really, it's not something I really um, have examined that much, um, but it's, it's always been, I guess, kind of like an impulse. And at a certain point, I guess I, at, at different times, I, I sort of gave into it and, and um, brought it into you know, um, you know, more intentional projects instead of just having it be this, this sort of doodle. Yeah. And in high school, were you focused on art? Um, I was, so I was always, I guess I was always, you know, there, there was a time when I wasn't sure if I was going to go more into writing or visual mm-hmm. arts, but at a certain point, I guess I, I sort of, um, yeah, I, I kind of, I, I think I took a, I took a, um, like a, I guess, studio art or art major. I can't remember, can't remember what, the, what the class was called. I, I took a class that was kind of a, a general, kind of a serious, um, had a serious focused approach to to developing a kind of a studio practice. And um, I was a bit of a mess, um, you know, from, I guess, from ages, you know, 15 to, to 17. And, and I remember there was a moment where... Um, I was working on this this painting. We had to do these um, self portraits, kind of Chuck Close style. Um, take a photo and blow it up and divide it up into little, you know, kind of break it up into grids, into a grid. Um, and and you know, I, I sort of had this uh, this this moment of transcendence where I was I was trying to finish this painting, and you know, you're supposed to work on it upside down, so you weren't focusing on trying to. Um, you weren't focusing on the fact that it was your own face and, and worried about whether it was, whether the likeness was coming together or not. And I, I kind of just forgot what I was doing and sort of lost myself and trying to rec- trying to capture these shapes. And, um, 
it, it sort of saved me, I think. And, you know, cause I was, I didn't really have a lot of, I was sort of, uh, yeah, I was in a, a bit of a dark place at that point. And I think, uh, I think just, just realizing that that, that could be an outlet, um, you know, sort of, I, I kind of refocused, um, specifically on, on being a visual artist. I mean, I was always a creative kid. I was always drawing, like when I was much younger, I was really into comics and I was one of those kids that kind of learned how to draw by copying, uh, by kind of redrawing, you know, comics like Wolverine or, um, Spawn or eventually the Max, you know, when I was like nine, 10 years old, um, and eventually discovered underground comics. Um, but I, I sort of put, I put that aside for a while, you know, you're trying to, you're sort of forming as a, as a human and you're trying to figure out, you know, you're trying to be cool. You're trying to figure out how to present yourself to the world. And maybe you, you put aside these things that you, that you did, you know, maybe you're like, well, it's, um, you know, drawing comics and, and photocopying them at my mom's office and selling them at school. You know, maybe you reach a certain point where, like maybe that's not the thing to do or you're, you're trying to figure out. So you, you sort of put it aside. But I think, I think that that moment when I was working on that painting, I, I was able to rediscover that, um, you know, the, 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 the power of just sort of like losing yourself in that, in that creative process. And so I, I switched over, I decided to, to fully go all in and, and, you know, focus on making images in one way or another. I had no idea. I didn't really have any model of what that would, what that meant, like what it, what a career as an artist, you know, would be. My parents right. aren't artists. Um, I didn't, I had no professional, you know, artists in my, in my family. So eventually I made my way to, to New York and ended up at, um, at art school, kind of moved to New York at 19 to go to art school and just kind of threw myself into it and fig sort of figured it out. So was this in Greece? No, actually. So I, I was born in Greece. Um, my, my mother's American. My dad was Greek. And then my folks split up, split up when I was seven. Um, and we moved to the States. Um, my mother and my, my three sisters, or my, sorry, my, my two sisters. Uh, my dad eventually had two other, um, kids. Uh, so now I, I, I have, had four sisters, um, two sisters, sisters in Greece, but, um, we moved to Connecticut. My mother was from Connecticut. So I, I sort of, my, the second half of my childhood, I uh, kind of grew up, grew up there, but I, we'd, we'd spend summers in Greece. We'd go over there, get shipped over there for a couple months every year. That's cool. Yeah. To stay with our dad. Was, what is your relationship to Greece? Is it important? Yeah. I mean, you know, moving to the States, at that age, you know, I think, I think seven is the age when you're sort of like the core of your personality is kind of formed and all the, your, your sense impressions of, of the environment that you, that you grew up, that you grow up in have, have made an imprint on you. Right. And, um, mm -hmm. so, uh, and to me that was, you know, uh, especially in the summer, like long, hot days, um, like a lot of unstructured time. Cause in Greece, there's a very, you know, it's, it's just a lot, uh, time, time is different, you know, time just moves. There's, it felt like there was a lot of time and, um, you'd have those, the, in the afternoons, everything, you know, you have a late lunch and then, um, everyone sort of takes a nap things just sort of shut down from like three o'clock to to six or seven o'clock and then people kind of slowly wake up and have coffee and then you have a late dinner. And, and so if you're a kid growing up in that environment, you sort of have a lot of time where you just sort of, you're just on your own and you're kind of running wild. And, um, we lived on the edge of, um, the second city of Greece, uh, in the North called Thessaloniki. 
and we lived on the edge of the city and just kind of beyond our block of uh, kind of apartment blocks across the street was just sort of wilderness and there were stray dogs and there was um, we'd go for walk, you know, we'd go kind of explore and, and, um, you know, find turtles in the, in the, you know, in the sort of, this sort of wild area that was sort of like a, like the edge of a, a big forest. Um, and, and then moving to the States, it was sort of a culture shock because everything felt very, uh, scheduled and, and, uh, you know, sort of, I, I wasn't used to sort of being told what to do. And, and I was always kind of pushing against that. Um, so, and you know, my name, I, I never sort of anglicized my name. So I think I was always pegged as, as kind of like the foreign kid. Um, so, and, and kind of going back every year, uh, that, that sort of reinforced like that, that other half of my identity. So I've always sort of felt kind of split in two, um, that kind of duality and be able to see both worlds from the outside. And like, I can, you know, I can, I can see the, I can criticize both cultures. Um, you know, I, I can see, I can see the benefits of, of each and kind of take what I take, what works for, for each of those, from each of those experiences. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good thing, right? Because it's evident that you are prolific and structured and professional Right. Like you do a lot of work. You've worked at the Rezo. Did you found the Rezo lab? Yeah, yeah, I started it. So like that's, so you got both within you and then you have these colorful, a lot of colorful imagery. Mm-hmm. Do you still go back to Greece every yeah. year? Yeah, almost every year. I mean, we're going this August. Uh, my wife's from Korea. So now we, now we have a third country we, we need to Interesting. kind of split our time between, but um but yeah, I, I try to go back, you know, it's it just, just, you know, especially in the summer, it's, um, it's just so nice to be on the beach and the, the food. It's, just, it's, it's such a beautiful country. I, I go back and I just, I kind of recharge, you know, it sort of, it gives me, uh, gives me energy to get through the winter and kind of uh, survive another New York sure. winter, you know. How long does it take you to transition from New York speed to Greek speed? Um. It's interesting. I mean, I get fr- I do get frustrated sometimes when I'm in Greece and everyone just wants to like sit around and chill, you know, and like it's <laughs> it's got, you know, there's this cafe culture where it's just bros sitting around uh, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes all day. And like I, um, you know, I want to I want to sort of get shit done. But, um, uh, you know, but pretty, pretty quickly, I mean, by the, you know, we try to try to get to the beach within 24 hours and um that also feels in a way just because like, I know I'm charging up that feels like, uh, like I can sort of, it feels like it's also quality time. Like I'm not just, it's different from like sitting, sitting around, just watching, watching TV or something, or just like lying around, sure. lying on the beach feels productive. Somehow it feels like you're, you're charging, like the sun is, is energizing your body and you're, you're, you know, you're building up your power and you're building up your, your strength to, to do whatever you need to do. You know, so it sounds like you have purpose because I think I think people and this is no knock on people without purpose, but they view those times as like pure rest, not in the service of something else. Like it has no utility. Yeah. But it sounds like you like ultimately to get things done. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and that's and that's almost like that's almost a problem in a way because I'm always br- trying to bring work, and uh, my wife is always yelling at me because like I'll bring like a, a folder full of drawing. I'll be like, okay, I won't bring I won't bring the paints this time because I didn't even touch them before. But I'll try to like, you know, and of course I you know I never get anything done, but because um, a there's no time, and b it's just ridiculous. It's like, uh, what are you trying to you know you, you're there for for just a few weeks, and uh, you can you know it, it's. Um, but but you know I'm all, there's a part of me that's always trying to squeeze in projects, um, but I'll, I'll bring a sketchbook at the very least. I'll try to make drawings and you know or, or read or plan things out. So I'm always I, I think that part of me never really turns off. Also, my dad wasn't really a typical Greek, um, you know, in terms of uh, relaxing and chilling. He was very he was an engineer. He's very very kind of focused. He always had different projects going on. Um, so and he also knew how to relax hard as well but you know at the beach it's like you know you then you you bring your snorkel and then you swim you swim out a mile or two and then like he would just disappear and then he'd come back with like all these beautiful shells that he, he dove down to, to to catch or he used to go spear fishing you know he used, to have, he used to have a spear gun he'd come back with an octopus and then bash it against a, a rock for like an hour um in front of all the like traumatizing all the kids on the beach um <laughs> But because uh, that you got to tenderize the meat immediately. But um, huh. so so you know so I, I think I think also like my 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 Greek family also is not typical of of uh, of what you you know what people think of if they know of any Greek families or you know so and also my dad in particular. So I think I think I got a lot of that from him as well. And my mother's from Connecticut, so she's got. The, I think there's a little bit of that New England like sort of you know trying to always always be productive always sort of that that kind of work ethic so i kind of i kind of got a little bit of both but um, yeah that's a beautiful mix yeah do you find that you're in tension with those all the time or you can at this point in your life make compartments like you're saying you go in the summer or are you in new york and you're like damn i wish i was in greece and vice versa or you've kind of re- resolved that uh, duality. It's it's a good tension, you know. Ultimately, I'd like. To, I think I'm always going to be like sort of uh, nom- uh, nomadic or seasonal, like a seasonal bird, you know. Like you fly. I'd, I'd like to, what I'd like to do is like extend the periods in each place, and and I can see that. That's sort of the, what I've been trying to put together um, for years. Like you know, initially with trying to move more towards you know, in terms of the some of the the money work I do that's not that's art related but it's more like teach you know more like uh related to my work at SVA like I you know before like 10 10 or so years ago I was like I was like oh man I need to like get an MFA so I can start I need to figure out how to teach you know so I can work less you know and get paid more for that time and then and then open up more time because my goal has always been to kind of open up more time to 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 make work and to to kind of like because time is time is the most valuable thing um but then beyond that the goal was also to be able to just sort of like go away for long periods of time and sort of so ultimately i'd like to you know be able to go go you know be there for like the whole summer and then be here for the whole winter and and that's that's kind of hopefully what i'm you know continuing to push push towards so but but it's it's a good it's a good tension the two play off each other i think my greek um my Greekness or the the Greek part of my personality actually helps in New York because Greeks are um, like Greeks always, everyone thinks they're smarter than everyone else. So they're always trying to like, I mean, it's definitely a hustle. It's a, it's a haggling culture and it's sort of a hustling culture. It's a, it's a marketplace culture. Um, No one's going to pay full price. 
mm-hmm. you know, um, you're always going to find some way to get a discount or let's sort of bend the rules a little bit. Um, so that kind of assertiveness and sort of, you know, and I guess you could call it entitlement, but it's sort of like a, uh, you know, it's also like a, it's an Italian thing too. It's, it's very New York because New York, you have, New York's also like, it's always been like a marketplace, you know, since, since it was founded by the Dutch, it was like a big, it's a city of commerce. It's a people, it's a city of, of people trying to get the best deal. So I think it's really helpful to be able to tap in that energy here and, and, um, cause otherwise you just get run over. So, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's entitlement. It might be the opposite. It's like this necessity to get by. Yeah. It's like survival, you know? Yeah. So what does your name mean? Panayotis? It means, uh, well, ban, uh, the prefix bano means it's from epano, which means above and ayo <laughs> is, is holy. So it's literally, it's holy of holies. <laughs> Panayoti. Wow. Um, but generally, it's it's a Greek Orthodox name that refers to the the Virgin Mary, and uh, it's probably the most common Greek name, like one of the most common Greek names, like the top, definitely the top like five, if not the the top three. When I whenever I go to Greece, or even before I get there, like if we're we're waiting, if we have a connecting flight, you know, if we're waiting in an airport in Munich to catch the flight to Athens or Thessaloniki. Like I'll hear my name. Like we, I'll hear my name before we get to the gate. Like we're 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 close to the gate, and I, I I look ahead and I see like a a crowd of these like stressed out, nervous like you know middle aged balding men um, just kind of pacing, and then someone shouting Panayoti, and it's like some little kid that's messing around the corner, and um, or it's an old man, you know. So it's oh, yeah, wow. It, it's a very common name, but there's no direct translation, so that's why unless you know. You know, unless you unless you know like Greek Americans in the U.S., um, you know, you may not have heard of it. And people and people get they 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 see it spelled out and they just they kind of freak out because of all the vowels and the the Y and you know. Um, so you can also fluctuate between being exotic and completely ordinary. I I get. I mean, I yeah yeah. That's, <laughs> you know, um, I, that's cool. I didn't I didn't take. I you know I could have been I could have been Peter, but that's Petros. So I never, I never kind of simplified it. These days, people call me Pan, but people have called me like Paniotti, Pinotti. Back, back when it was sort of a mangling of my full name, I'd always get people would always ask me. They'd say, "Oh, your parents hippies," you know, like "Oh, Peyote." Oh, sure. They'd want to call sure. me Peyote, you know. Um, so, do you love the name? Uh, I mean, it's it's my name. I, I appreciate it. You know, I think That's good. I think it's it looks it pops out on the list. You know, it's it's very Greek. I don't know if it's helped or hurt me in terms of like people finding me because they can't spell my name. But um, I also like that that I can I like Pan as well because that feels like because that also kind of refers to um, inadvertently it kind of refers to uh, an older part an older part of Greek uh, Greek culture because that my full name is. Greek Orthodox, but Pan, you know, you think of the, the satyrs and the, the goat man, yeah. you know, they used to come with Dionysius and, you know, um, sort of rile everyone up and these blood orgies and, and whatnot. Does that, does that fit your personality? Um, I mean, uh, not these days. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I think everyone's got a little bit of that, but, um, you know, uh, that's something we all need to kind of keep in check. It's the balance between the, I guess these days I'm, I'm more Apollonian, right? I'm more like trying to, trying to bring the light and trying to, trying to be disciplined and controlled. Um, I had plenty of that 
you know, there were years where I sort of indulged a little bit too much. Like I specifically in high school, I mean, that's, I was, I kind of got into some, some shit. We don't need to go too much into it, but, um, but a lot of the things people get into in college, I sort of, I sort of got into that stuff early on and, and almost completely derailed my life. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, just kind of finding, you know, figuring like, like I said, like, um, you know, realizing that I could use art to, to kind of achieve some of those same states, um, without all the, all the negative, uh, you know, all the, the price you pay, you know, if you're, if you're sure. using different substances and the way that's going to kind of melt down your, you know, yourself, your personality, um, your energy, your motivation, your health, um, you know, that was, that was huge for me. That was a huge, that was like a gift that moment. I was, I remember I was listening to the white album and I, I, because I'd read Helter Skelter and I, um, you know, and there was that theory that the prosecutor came up with that, you know, may or may not have been true, but that Manson was um, obsessed with the Beatles and he was hearing messages in the White Album and he thought that um, the Beatles were telling him to send his followers out to kill rich people and start a race war. Um, but uh, anyway, I was fascinated by, specifically just by the I mean, it's just such a crazy story. And I grew up, you know, with, with the Beatles, the music of the Beatles. And I was like, and it's such an odd album. So um, I became really fascinated with that album. Anyway, I was like, you know, kind of going through a phase where I was revisiting it. So I was, I was playing that album over and over again um, while I was painting um, when I had that sort of moment. Um, but um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what I'm getting is there's a sense of strong uh, contrast yeah like duality yeah. and that makes sense for the work because there's this ancient feeling but this futurist feeling at the same time mm -hmm. which and it's also like it seems pretty greek at times right like what you're pulling from yeah yeah and i, I avoided that for a while um but i think maybe about 12 years ago i i took another look at um classical art because it's it would just it just felt like it would be too obvious for a greek guy to be making to be pulling from classical antiquity um, or, you know, the, whatever, whatever era, you know, any kind of Greek references, it seemed like too obvious, like too on the nose. But, um, you know, I started referencing, I started sort of sampling um, elements from sort of traditionally ancient Greek imagery um, in a, in a generic sense, you know, not like a classical, not like a scholar of the classic, just, just like a very surface level, sampling of it because i realized it kind of lined up with some other ideas i had at the time um I, I realized it's it's been used so much um that it's it's like a it's neutral and it's kind of empty there's so many different artists and you know um you know writers uh different political movements who have you know tried to take the remnants of of ancient greek culture and the bits and pieces and sort of molded into whatever whatever they wanted to whatever agenda they had whatever sort of message or idea that they wanted to push and i realized it was just it was just this kind of neutral thing you know you could you, i mean um it's like a sticker it's like something you can see on a coffee cup in a, in a greek diner and i was kind of interested in that at the time because i was i was i had been i gotten really deep into printmaking and the fact that printmaking 
is so mechanical and it's it's so robotic when you're doing it right you really have to you really have to sort of be consistent and um do the same thing over and over again like a robot and it felt really weird to be i was making these screen prints of of these drawings that had a very specific style that people could identify as my own and i wanted to get away from that so i was trying to pull from like clickbait advertising and mm-hmm. i was collaging just like um you know, Sky Mall images from Sky Mall catalogs and just this sort of junk, like this garbage and trying to like just pull it and, and depersonalize my own work a little bit. And, you know, I, I realized I could do that with, with, uh, with ancient, ancient Greece, but I sort of feel with the, the future and past thing, that's, I, I sort of, you know, that's not something, again, that's not something that I, I sat down and thought about and decided I would do, but, but after pulling from different sources of inspiration i realized you know i mean it's at a certain point i looked at what i was doing and i was like this is kind of like the condition that we're all living in where you have every era all available to us all at once like there's just so much media there's so much you know we can access so much information um and it's not it's not such a new thing but it's definitely accelerated especially with the internet and with this feeling that we're like in the future already um, that we're living in a dystopian sci-fi novel already, or we we have been for 15 years already. And I, I kind of grew up on these on the, the sci-fi blockbusters of the 90s and 80s. You know, Terminator 2 and The Abyss, and um, you know, Alien, the Alien series. Like all that stuff had a huge impact on me and just kind of burned it. You know, that also left an impression on me. In addition to kind of growing up in a country where you have the ruins, you have ruins from like many different eras, all just kind of, you know, visible on the street, not even just, not even just like kind of ancient Greek ruins, but also ruins of uh, Byzantine, like a wall, you know, walls from the middle ages um, that were built by, um, you know, that were, that were built, that were built during the Byzantine era of the, the Eastern Roman empire. And, um, churches that are like a thousand years old, um, you know, and like uh, neoclassical apartment buildings and houses, mansions that are falling apart from the 1800s. Um, and all that stuff is just there. It's just all rotting together, you know, and then you have like stores selling, you know, selling like electronics across the street. And it was just all that stuff mashed together. Just, I, I, I think like, I think, you know, it felt natural to kind of mash it all together in my own work too, you know, cause as opposed to like have a pure focus on one era or another, cause that sort of felt like a kind of escapism, I guess. But yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I relate to this idea of like, I don't want to depict the present. Um, I don't want to draw genes on someone, etc. But it's interesting that you would call that escapism because sometimes I feel cowardly for not wanting to, I don't know, draw the time I live in. It's like, you know, obviously Hakosai is like, he's drawing what he's seeing around him, probably because he was more at peace with his culture. Yeah. In some sense. Yeah. No, I, 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 I feel the same way too. I'm like, well, this is, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just making up a, I'm just, you know, this, I'm just kind of making up a, a pipe, tr- another pipe dream for, you know, just, just another, this is a different form of escapism in a way, but, um, well, is it a pipe dream or is it a dystopia? That's why I like, I can't really tell. I think it's a bit of both. I think you just kind of need to lead in, lean into it. I mean, it's, it's, it's just horrible and beautiful at the same time. Um, 
you know, I, I can't like in terms of the your world that it's inhabited. Do you feel that it's just it's not one or the other, right? I think it depends on the project. I mean, there's there's definitely there. The, I did a, I did a few collages where I was sort of um, is four collages, but I've made other work that collage collage printed collage work, I guess, um, where I'm pulling from scraps of different things and mashing things together, and, which has this sort of very dark dark energy. Um, and so I think with those, I sort of lean leaned into that. Um, that feeling of, of everything is sort of on fire and falling apart and it's just this nightmare world and almost wanting to, wanting the end to come and wanting the whole thing to be obliterated. And so, you know, you're leaning to the chaos. Um, but then with the faces and with some of the paintings, it, you know, I'm also just sort of playing with, you know, I'm, I'm escaping into playing with color and form and it, it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, you're 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 working it's hard to just i always have something playing in the background like whether it's a podcast or music or something but you know you sort of you're putting yourself to work and the goal is to get yourself to the point where you forget that you're there you forget what you're doing and you're just kind of in the process and you're just you're just enjoying putting one color next to another and sort of putting you know depicting forms and so it's not always that conscious but yeah I, i do wonder how certain you probably better not to think about it too much but um whether um something is like why or whether whether people enjoy looking at certain work that i do and and then why they do because you know people use the word beautiful a lot and i'm like i don't know if that's good or not you know it's (laughs) i I think it's good i think it's good yeah i don't think they mean traditionally beautiful um because you know they could say it's like the colors can be garish in some sense, but yeah, they are yeah. they are beautiful. I think yeah. I think the color is optimistic and the content can be cynical, mm. or there's like some tension there. Yeah, that's interesting to me. Like the future or these future faces as really rainbow, sugary, candy looking, mm-hmm. as opposed to like cold metal. Yeah, yeah. And you think these. I guess I'm I'm thinking back to that thing you said about drawing the upside down Chuck Close face project. Mm-hmm. You think it's the nature of that assignment that saved you, or just the self portrait uh, in and of itself? It was just painting. It was just the fact that I could. Oh, it was just like, painting. Yeah, I was like the fact that I could I could just do this thing and I could focus on this thing and and it feels as good as getting high. Um, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know it's not gonna wear off in an hour. I'm not gonna. Um, you know, it's not going to sort of, uh, destabilize the rest of my, um, you know, the rest, the rest of my week. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it, it was, it was just making basically, but in terms of the faces, um, and I, I think the fact that it was upside down, we had to paint black and white and it was sort of like, I wasn't so tied to making it look good that that like that moment sort of um yeah just it just like here's another thing you could, here's something else you could do instead you know it's just a reminder you know like remember this right, right um but we yeah with the with the faces um yeah these, these future faces i like in some ways you know it's funny you, you say they're a little cynical because because it is 
you know, it's not one thing I don't think about that much consciously, but um, when I think about it a little bit, it might, might have something to do with how, um, just how people's personalities are so uh, ephemeral, especially, and, and, you know, you see how people's personalities can change with their habits and specifically with their habits in regards to technology and communications and, you know, how they portray themselves on a platform versus how they are in real life and, you know, the kind of beliefs you see them picking up. And, um, yeah, I mean, these are thoughts I've had after, after making these faces, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm like, well, sometimes I wonder like, what are all these faces I'm making? What do they want? They're all just staring straight ahead. What do they want? What are they thinking? Um, are they gods or are they, sort of just like a stripped down node of personality or are they, is it like the building blocks of a personality? Cause I mean, a face, there's a, I read a theory that there's a, they, they, some, there's some, a theory that we developed, we evolved to have faces uh, because we're social animals. And so, you know, a face signifies immediately, um, you know, what you're about, you know, that's, that's the first thing people will pick up or they'll read into whether it's accurate or not they see your face and, and they immediately in an instant form all kinds of preconceptions about, about your health, about your energy levels, about, um, you know, whether you're threatening or not, whether, I mean, all kinds of things. Um, and we actually know more about people than we consciously realize or let ourselves believe, believe, you know, and that, I'm really interested in that too. Um, what, what we know that we don't know, we know. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, they're more masks, right? Now that I'm thinking about it, they're less faces to me, more masks. And they're definitely more like demigods or demiurges than none of them has, have ever struck me as God. Yeah. They feel yeah. like sub, uh, or they feel like hyper-evolved humans. I think what's interesting to me is how much I can get out of them, and probably what you can get out of them, obviously, it's why you keep drawing them, um, just from this this kind of um, repetitive, in a good way, depiction of them, these series of faces. Well, they're, they're fun. They're fun to make. And it's, um, you know, the forms like it, I just enjoy making them, but then, yeah, there's so much you can do in faces. We're just primed to see faces everywhere. So, uh, you know, you put together something that sort of looks like two eyes, a nose and a mouth um, and, and you can, you can really push that to the limit, but people will, if, if it's close to, if it's, if it's near that, um, you know, if, if things, if, if it's close enough to that territory, then people will, uh, interpret it as a face. And so they're going to, they're going to react to it. And I like, I guess I like, uh, to make whether, you know, what maybe beautiful is people are saying beautiful, but they really you know, they really, what they really mean is it's, uh, it's, it's powerful or it's air it activates them somehow, which I guess is a kind of a, these days that's beautiful. Like if you get a charge from something, if something affects you and you don't forget it, then that's, that's beautiful in a way, even, even if it's, you're using something that's repellent to make that or garish. Yeah. I think that's a um, semantic, semantic mistake by people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like one is, um, you might say attractive in yeah. that it attracts attention, but beauty is very different although hard to talk about yeah i think what people sense maybe is 
the there's a traditional quality with like the fruit depiction, mm-hmm. the kind of ancient qualities. And I think there is a sensibility Europeans often have that is just, I, I would say, more beautiful without getting into explaining it too much. But I think mm-hmm. Europe is just more beautiful in the traditional sense than America for mm-hmm. a ton of reasons. Mm-hmm. But why do you think the fruit still life thing uh, comes up so often? Oh, yeah. So that's that's sort of another thing that just, it, I just kept doodling fruits compulsively. I think it was around 20... 2019 that that i i decide you know it they it, it just made its way into my work um first in a actually in a commercial um piece uh, i did a poster design for elsewhere space this uh um design duo uh i bodega they reached out to me um and they they wanted to work with me to to make this to make a poster for their upcoming shows and um i was like this is the perfect project let me just you know, let me just pull from stuff I've been drawing. And, um, but the fruits, like, I just, um, you know, it's another thing, like, like a face, everyone knows what a fruit looks like. Um, everyone's got an idea of a fruit. And I, I guess I was sort of trying to boil fruits down to the most, the most sort of like, uh, the simplest, like dumbest, uh, most, just most like elemental platonic ideal of a, of a fruit. Um, and, and I, I kind of went and it would just seem so dumb, but also something that like could appeal to everyone. And another thing like a face that you could kind of stretch out, not that I was trying to appeal to everyone, but I thought that I wanted to see what would happen if I pulled it into my work. Like it's so general, you know, and so like anonymous. And I, I guess that's another example of that where I'm trying to like, um, trying to, um, depersonalize what I'm doing and, by, by yeah, pulling yeah. in these general ideas so well it's fundamental yeah so sometimes i get confused by by like um i think there's this weird tension where you want to avoid fundamental things because you feel like you're selling out sometimes because you're just depicting this easily digestible thing but then there's that whole idea notion that there's a reason it's fundamental there's a reason it keeps appearing mm-hmm. And I think for a long time, I, I avoided stuff like that because I thought it was cheap. Mm-hmm. But it's actually the opposite because now you're tasked with making something really common appear magical. Yeah. And that's much harder, I would say, than taking like some weird, wacky image and presenting it to someone. Yeah, no, I, I was I wanted to make something I wanted to take something really basic and, and like stupid and, and boring and, and ki- like cliche, you know, like and just it's again, it's like an empty vessel. I can I can play with it can just be a way to make a composition. I can play with uh, with form and with color um, and, you know, and, and, and again, it's like a, it's like a art. Hit, it's like a art uh sort of art school trope it's a, it's how you learn how to how to draw or how to paint you always do like you do fruit still right. life or the um the vanitas paintings you know like it, there's all these references there so um i think it's yeah it's like i think it's almost a power move to lean into the cliche or you lean into the the thing that's really obvious but you do it so hard that it becomes new again and it becomes even more powerful because it's like unexpected because it's right there. You do the thing that's most obvious because everyone thinks like, why would you do that? Yes. Um, so that's, that's kind of what, where the fruit, I, th- I think the fruits, 
maybe I might be, you know, maybe maybe I'm at peak fruit or I kind of passed peak fruit. And <laughs> it's, it's time to put the fruits aside. But um, I don't know. I mean, there's, I still enjoy. I just I just made another. I just banged out another another zine because um, I hadn't made a zine in a while, and I wanted to have something new for Brooklyn Art Book Fair. And there were a few fruits that that made their way in, into that into that one. But um, I think I figured out everything I can do with fruits for now, and maybe I'll put them aside for now and figure you know kind of shift on to something else. Mm-hmm. When you were mentioning, you mentioned depersonalization twice. Mm-hmm. Why is that a goal? Um, I think just because transcendence is, is something that I, you know, like transcending the yourself and transcending, like just being human and having, being uh, mortal and having a certain being, being limited, um, has always been something that's attracted to me to, uh, the, the creative process. Cause, um, you know, I, I guess, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a powerful thing um, to elevate yourself beyond your limitations. Um, I guess that that's, I've never really thought, actually, I've never really thought about it, about it that way specifically, but based on other things we've been talking about, I realized that that's part of it. But, um, when I've spoken about this before in the past, I guess part of it has been that part of it came from printmaking. I got really into using screen printing and lithography and different, different, you know, kind of very mechanical forms of making, repeating an image over and over again. Um, I got really into, into those techniques, uh, when I was in art school and kind of brought them into that became a core part of my, um, my work, you know, the way I'm, the way I was able to make my work and get it out there initially and make all these connections and start being part of the conversation by making books and scenes and getting stuff out there, making it portable. But, um, I started thinking a lot about machines in the process because I realized like if you're, if you're working with printmaking, you're part of a big machine and you're just the fleshy part of the machine, you're the operator, but you're also like the lever and the gear and, you know, and, and sort of, I was interested in that. I wanted to lean into that. And I was also, it was also at a time in the late two thousands and early 2010s, like the first few years when I was kind of out of school but still in school because I was working at an art school in a printmaking department so but I was you know I was starting to show my work I was starting my work was starting to get her, get around I was starting to to uh have some of what I was doing circulate in in different scenes and different worlds um and um and you know and and at the same time there was and I was I was interested in technology it sort of felt like we were living in the future and I was I was trying to pull, I was pulling from, from imagery that sort of felt like it was making references to technology and patterns and automation. And, um, because, you know, we, we were definitely technology was accelerating and, and the ways that was just kind of creeping into our everyday lives was accelerating. Um, so I was interested in that, but, um, you know, I wanted to reflect that feeling of, of depersonalization and being part of a machine and sort of what would a machine make? Um, I mean, this is, this is 13 years before or 15 years before like actual AI programs that, that mash up, you know, uh, images from a database of stolen artwork, you know, whatever these, uh, mid So now we have actual AI and, and, uh, you know, I mean, it looks like shit, but, um, but I was trying to think like, what would, what would, you know, how can you just let the machine run its course? So I was trying to like get out of my own way. And I think that's something that, I think that's something that artists have always tried to do. And, and, and whether you call it like 
whether you try to approach it from a mechanical or from a where you try to try to pretend that you're you're pulling yourself out of the process and you're not making the decisions you, you let something else make the decisions um like you pretend that it's the machine that you just kind of set things up and it takes its own course or you you're summoning a demon or you're evoke or you're letting the unconscious you know depending on whatever era there was always something else something that was something else that's not you that um that sort of is responsible for the imagery and i've always sort of had that um approach you know like when 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 i if i sit down and decide i want to make something and i'm i'm very conscious of it it never it never works you know it's always when i when i just work intuitively and so i guess that's my own way of of doing that um right right you know yeah and it can get too demystifying if we talk about it yeah too much so yeah. we'll stop on that but it's a good transition to the rizo lab or rizo lab i don't know what you call it um so when did you start that and how did that come about so um i got a hold of a rizo uh and i was i was in grad school at sva in 2015 uh early 2015 and um there was this uh, chair of a small mfa program that was trying to start a space dedicated to the Rizzo process. Um, and he recruited me and, um, kind of brought me in and, and, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to teach, but he, he needed, you know, he didn't really have, he, he had a background as in, in, uh, printmaking and, uh, he's an illustrator. So he knew, he knew a bit about the printmaking process, but not so much about Rizzo printing. So he kind of brought me in to start that space in 2015 and um it started with just a few classes um both taught by me and and not really any staff whatsoever it was just kind of me and some student assistants so i was sort of doing everything and doing it all part-time and, and teaching and trying to figure out how you how you teach classes with this with this kind of um you know odd um japanese coffee machine technology um, and eventually, you know, we added more faculty, we added more staff and it just, uh, it just sort of took on a life of its own and just kept growing via word of mouth. Um, and, and yeah, it, it just sort of snowballed and it's become kind of an institution. I think the timing was perfect because 2015 was a time when people had some, if you said Rizzo to people that were doing art stuff, uh, they they might have a vague idea of what it was, maybe, but but no one, most people didn't really had never really seen one. It was impossible to access one. There were only like two or three people in New York that had a Rizzo. Uh, so we we provided we gave the public a chance to. Sorry about that. Did did <laughs> so. Um, you know, we, we gave people access and, and, and they, we gave people a chance to sort of, um, apply all the same printmaking techniques to the process the way I did, um, in, a in a compressed form, um, over, you know, over these 12 week classes and then pay a lab fee to, to use the space. So, um, that's sort of the model. You have to take a class um, after you finish a class, you can then pay a lab access fee and you can book print time during the open lab hours, but, um, but you really have to know what you're doing. There's no, you don't pay extra if you use it more. Everyone pays a flat 
rate, sort of like a gym membership. So some people just show up mm-hmm. once a semester and they're subsidizing everyone else. Um, but yeah, it works out. It's, it's become this thriving, booming community. Uh, and, and it's, it's become known outside of the SVA sphere. Some people don't even know that we're, they might not even know what SVA is and they know about the Rezo Lab. Um, Can you speak to the trajectory of Rezograph? Cause I remember, like you said, I remember first hearing about it that must've been like eight years ago or something. And yeah, there's something mysterious about it. Yeah. That's, 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 that's right. When we started, you know, that was 2015. Yeah, it was, it was, it was shocking because obviously they'd been around for a while, the machines. Yeah. yeah. But how do you feel things have differed now? Like, is it just commonplace? Is it, is there less of a specific aesthetic and culture trying to use it? Is it more just a printing technique now? Or is there still an identity attached to it? There's still an identity, but it's just it's just like opened opened up dramatically. And honestly, I'm I don't think I don't think I think it's good that that it's that it's been kind of cracked open. Some of the identity and the specific thing if they think people think that there's a specific aesthetic associated with it but i th- i think that's just that's just because certain people uh certain you know kinds of creative people really jumped on it and it made a lot of sense for them like illustrators and cartoonists and they a lot of them work in a specific style and that might be you know the first sort of rezo work that that people might have seen um uh but but really you can print anything with with a rezo it's definitely expanded there's a lot but it's still not as easy to access um a rezo like if you want to just you know get on a machine and just start printing and actually run it yourself um we're really the only space at least in new york that 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 gives that kind of access there's a lot of rezo studios that are a lot of a lot of publishers i mean it's a it's just been a massive explosion so it's um you know, so I, I would say, so I first heard about it in about 2010. There was, um, I had been very involved in the the world of, of I guess, artist books because I was making artist books and I, I got a book into printed matter. They they um, they became huge supporters of my work and, and got my work into a lot of different places and opened up a lot of opportunities for me. And so people, people in that scene sort of knew, um, you know, they, there was some awareness of what I was doing. And there was a guy that was working for them, this intern who I became friends with, who had gotten hold of, of this machine that he called a Rezograph. And, um, you know, he described it as this automated screen printing machine. And I, I, you know, he knew I was a big printmaker, so he kept, he kept harassing me to do some, do, do a project on it, right? He, um, and, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't picture, I couldn't picture what it, what an automated screen printing machine would look like. You know, I thought it might be some kind of a gigantic mechanical contraption that would take up a whole room, and maybe you run it with a crank, and there's a or there's a motor on the end, and like it, there's a, you know, you get paint all over your shoes, just like this sort of. Uh, um, you know, just like a cast iron, like, uh, very loud mechanical sort of contraption. Um, but, you know, he brought me to the space where he was storing it and there's this like bloated yellowing copy machine with these really big buttons and like a gray, a gray scale 
um, screen. And, and I was, I mean, I was, I was honestly very disappointed. I, I, I was very underwhelmed when I, when I first saw it, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't think I was like, this is this automated screen printing machine. Cause my experience of screen printing was very physical, very messy. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and this was just like a box, you know, but right. the fact that you actually have to run, have to operate it, you, uh, you load up the, the drums, um, but it just looks like a copy machine. That combination of it looking so ordinary and boring and kind of uh, banal and the fact that you have to actually run it, you have to sort of be a bit of a technician. I, I found that cut pretty exciting and it felt, it felt like from a different, like it was a, this contraption from a different timeline, you know, and it was very liberating because I, I was making these artist books that were hand printed and I had to sell them for a pretty high price point because so much labor went into them. So suddenly I could, I could produce a lot more in less time and, and sell it for sell it for cheap. So I could, so for me, it really, it really blew up my, my artist book practice. Um, and that sort of evolved into a, a publishing practice. And that, that led to me kind of starting mega press and starting thinking about publishing other people and doing collaborations with, with other artists and, um, you know, building that up is like another, another form of income and is another, another way to actually take, take control of, um, you know, my output, um, and, um, as a, and, and, and put out more books and get them out farther, make them more accessible. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to imagine how to describe this machine to like the average person, because it just doesn't sound that different. You know, they'd be like, why wouldn't you just do a digital yeah. print of a book? It's like, um, yeah. It, it, so how would you describe it to like, you know, you, a man on the street <laughs> and why it is appealing? I mean, that's, you know, it, I feel like every other day I'm, it, you know, so, so um, you know, usually I'm describing it to people who at least have some sense of printmaking um but then sometimes there's people who don't even know what screen printing is so it's uh, you know it's it's like a it's like a um a japanese printing machine where you print with you build up your image with individual colors one by one and you can print with up to 80 different beautiful pigment rich colors um you have to but you have to design your artwork with those specific layers in mind. So it's more like printmaking than um, a copy machine where it blends together just four colors to create a composite of the color file that you, that you send to your inkjet, which, you know, which, which is why sometimes, you know, this beautiful, vibrant RGB image just looks like shit, which just looks like mud when you send it to your HP um, desktop uh, inkjet printer. Um, you know, and then if if they know a little bit about printmaking, I usually because because I I've, you know this is something I do, you know, on a on a weekly basis. I'm constantly I'm still evangelizing. I'm still kind of introducing people to Rezo. There's still people out there that don't know what it is, even who are artists, which is why I think that's you know it's still we're not even close to peak Rezo. I think it's it's not going away, and I think if anything, it's going to accelerate and maybe crack open to the mainstream. Um, but if someone knows, if they have some screen printing experience, or if they know anything about printmaking, I'll, I'll sort of make that connection. It's like a, it's like a, a print shop in a box. It's like uh, screen printing, but um, combined with a copy machine, or 
you know, some people know what a mimeograph is. So it's sort of like a mimeograph, but it's all, it's digital. It's all automatic. So. Yeah. It's just interesting how slight technological quirks can yield really different aesthetic outputs and appeals. I'm actually looking through my emails out of curiosity. The first time I have it in my emails is, is uh, December 2011 because uh, I was talking to Never Press, who was printing a book oh, wow. out of um, L.A. So that was, well, 12 years ago. You know, I, I'm like a slightly a curmudgeon, so I'll probably lament when it's just kind of like another way to print something. Because mm -hmm. like even when I started uh, doing books for it back then, I thought of it as like the most primitive shit. Like I don't even think Never Press could register colors like two or three colors successfully because of their machine was kind of shitty. Yeah. And so I just thought of it as like, I don't, I don't even know. I, I like the texture. That was, a, that was like the main thing for me is the texture and the, and like the uh, stretch marks Yeah. that would happen, which you know, they don't even happen anymore because most people are just too good mm -hmm. at printing. Um, but yeah. again, that's an interesting contrast for your work where it's like this, um, embracing of technology but also this trying to hold on to something more human yeah no it, it it felt it felt perfect it felt perfect for what i was printing i the first rezo book i did was a book with this artist leomi sadler mm -hmm. um who I, I think you know their work right yeah uh, yeah um so we've been kind of emailing back and forth. We've been sending images back and forth for about a year because Neves, that publisher from Switzerland, mm -hmm. had put out a, a zine of each of ours at the same time. And for me, that was an opening because I loved, I loved her work and I had been kind of lurking on, on her, uh, she had a live journal, um, uh, page. Cause a lot of artists, even though live journal was sort of like cringy and, and dying even back then. Uh, and it's like there were a few artists that were, like Matt Locke also had a live journal um, that would that would post drawings and stuff, and I found, and also Nick Nick Gazen, who's someone I went to school with, he had a live journal where he would just kind of like, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but and so so I'd sort of like seen their work uh, online, and then like you know um, it just kept popping up here and there, and I really wanted, I really loved, uh, I really there was just there were a lot of aspects of 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 what. Leomi was doing that that um, really appealed to me, and I, I I reached out after that Neve's book was published, and um, you know they knew about my work as well, and you know we we just kind of started emailing back and forth, and you know I I proposed that we do like a some kind of collaboration. So we were sitting on all this all this material, and it was the perfect, but we still hadn't met. Like we'd been we'd been sending these long emails back and forth, and you know mailing packages of drawings back and forth, and scanning them, and then emailing images back. So it was, um, it was this sort of like, uh, analog, digital, online, offline, uh, free form kind of compost process where we were just like boiling, melting down each other's images and like collaging them and tearing them apart. It was very liberating. And it was the perfect thing to, to sort of slap on. I quickly threw together all these, um, color separations on, on paper. Cause I didn't, I didn't print from a computer for the first five years that I used Rezo. You know, my, I didn't, I didn't have access to networked Rezos until I got a chance to start the lab and suddenly I had these brand new machines. But at that point, you know, I printed my first book on my friend, his name is Alex Damianos. Um, and he's completely disappeared from the, he kind of dropped out of the artist book 
scene and and i don't even know i think he like went and studied law he went back to, he hmm. moved back to the uk and studied law and now he's like a professor there so I, I think but um but he'd got he'd gone to rezo and it was this gr that was half broken and every time you made a master you had to you had to peel the mask the old master off the drum and so your your hands were always all inky and like you could never get the registration right but it was just really exciting to see those those sheets just kind of fly out of the machine. Um, and he just left me in a room with these, I had a pile of scrappy color separations that I had thrown together the day before, um, to, to make this book. And I was able to make the whole book in a day. So it, um, it, it was just really liberating to, to be able to maximize my productivity and, and, uh, and to get, I realized that it could really change. I could actually maybe become a publisher, you know, as opposed to just like an artist making these screen print, these pr very precious hand printed books that were hand bound and were like these art objects, you know, that I, that I couldn't afford. I couldn't afford my own art, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. That is an issue. So, and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, these days it's, it's just too good. I mean, we, we teach people at the lab how to, we, we try to be state of the art and like space age, but I think there's something to be said for, um, just the scrappy down and dirty, like off the glass printing where you're just, you're just like printing one layer over another layer. And it's more like an old school Xerox kind of, you know, right. zine making process. And so when did Megapress emerge at the same time? Um, after a couple of years, I mean, I, I'd say when I, when I got, when I finally pulled the trigger and bought a Rezo, like I bought a Rezo off of eBay and it was broken. I had to sell it for scrap. Um, you know, I got a slight refund, but you know, I kind of ate it. Um, cause I didn't want to ship it back. I could have figured out freight shipping, but I was just so freaked out. I was like, Oh, okay, whatever. I'll just, I found a tech who told me it was like, you know, actually had 10 million, 300,000 prints on it, not, not 300,000 prints on it. So, so they had used it, they had run it into the ground and then it 10 million. Still, 10 million yeah i mean it printed but it was just like had a lot of issues so that i found a tech who could you know he, he wasn't able so the scanning bed was like the wires were all tangled up so it only scanned the first few inches of the image and then dragged the rest um and so he he came to my studio to look at it and you know he looked at it and he's like this this thing's got 10 million prints on it like even though the odometer says it's got three hundred thousand, <laughs> um, they ran it back on you. They just yeah, they they were just they just unloaded on me. So I could have shipped it back, but I was like, okay, whatever, I'll just eat it. Between between their discount, they like they gave me a partial refund, and what this guy was paying me the loss, I, I, I lost like a few hundred bucks. And then I then I bought a refurbished machine that was kind of up and running. But um, the first when I bought that machine. I got it because I wanted to make a publication called Trapper Keeper, which I wanted to make this dystopian sci-fi publication and throw together artists from this sort of the, you know, I guess the experimental comics slash zines, scenes, uh, and then also friends, artist friends that were painters and sculptors that didn't, whose work didn't really circulate in these kinds of publications. And I wanted them all to react to the prompt that we were already living in a, you know, um, cyberpunk dystopia in 2013. Um, like I felt like we were already living in dark times, but somehow there was still people just weren't really accepting it or realizing it. And I think, I think, I think it all, I think that all sort of 
uh, became clear to everyone a, a few years later, like when, just when, um, and maybe that's just like a, a just, you know, abusive, an abusive uh, media industry that was just trying to like, um, pump as many views as they could by stressing everyone the fuck out and really, yeah. you know, shoving terrible news in our faces, but things were already, things already seemed kind of dark to me. Um, you know, again, I'm someone who's, who has a sense of foreboding about the future since I was, you know, a senior in, or a junior in high school. Like I thought, um, you know, I thought bad shit was going to go down, um, you know, at the turn of the millennium and then it, and then it didn't, but then 9-11 happened. So there's a whole other thing. Um, but yeah, but so, so that publication, I realized I could just buy a machine and, and you know, instead of like I, for the cost it would, for what it would cost to get it printed offset i could just buy a rezo so that that was the start of mega press that was the first official mega press release it was trapper keeper one um and uh and yeah and then I, then after that i mean i i i did some contract printing in, initially like printing for people but but um quickly quickly sort of started turning that stuff away because i didn't really have time to print for other people, but that was, that was really helpful. It was, it's nice to have the nice thing about printmaking and having these different skills is you have a trade that you can fall back on sometimes to subsidize, um, your creative practice, you know, and it's like a, it's like one of the kind of working class, uh, um, you know, like print printers, people that can fabricate stuff, uh, people who work for sculptors. It's like, uh, you know, if, if you have, those are real skills, you know, and it's, it's a, it's one thing that, you know, I tell students like they should, they should try to learn these different things. Cause you can, you can buy time with these valuable skills to make your art, um, and not have to do something else that has nothing to do with, you know, with, with your, with your craft. So, yeah. So is that how you, you built financial stability by teaching and running the the publishing operation. Yeah, I mean it's always been a combination of things. I've never worked full time at anything. Um, when I got out of school, I, I got a job as a technician in the printmaking department at SVA. So, but I was always part time. I lived in South Brooklyn in a big house with a bunch of people, and you know I would juggle that and freelance illustration, and sometimes I would do printmaking jobs for people and just like a bunch of things here and there, but I just lived very cheaply for, for years and years and just like had a very low overhead. Um, so I've done a lot of different things. Teaching is great because, uh, because you sort of get a chance to just talk, uh, and talk about your ideas and, and, um, it keeps you connected to kind of the young energy of, of students that are just coming, coming up and, and and you ha you have kind of like you can sort of workshop different ideas too for different projects. Um, I'm going to be teaching a lot less going forward, which is which is which is kind of nice. But uh, um, uh, but it's been it's been great too. And I I'll probably always teach at least teach a little bit here and there. Uh, but I really enjoy that aspect. That and 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 be, being able to make things. I I think um, I think that's what that's what you have to do. You have to, you have to juggle a bunch of different things. And I don't, I don't think most, I think it's rare to immediately have what you do. Um, even if it does strike a chord, which I think, I think I was lucky to get some opportunities in the beginning. It takes a long time for that to be consistent enough to really be a, a real source of, of regular income. 
Yeah. I don't know if that as, ever stopped, as, as everyone know. knows, you know, I mean, it's, you know, you know, some people get it early and they, it's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. You know? I find jug, jugglers are more interesting yeah. to me, you know, like you're now you're embracing painting more, right? Yeah, no, I, I've, I've, um, yeah, I decided, I guess during the pandemic, cause I, I, I kind of wanted to, I've, I've always painted, I've, I've been painting on paper and gouache for, for years, but I wanted to sort of see if, um, I wanted to kind of go back to working on potentially working on canvas because I wanted to scale up, but on paper, you know, first of all, with gouache, you lay down a color and then that's kind of it. You can't really just work it. You can't work into it. It's, it's a, it's, it's a bit faster, I guess. Like, you know, if, if you make a move that you, you can't just cover it up and work back into it. And then the, I mean, the paper would fall apart. It just, it just doesn't work. But, um, you know, with, with canvas or with other mediums, you can spend a long time on something and, and really kind of get lost in it. And I wanted to go back to that because I wanted to kind of like have something that I could just work on large scale and just really be indulgent with time and with materials. And, um, especially right before the, I guess a year before the pandemic, I, I got a big studio in Gowanus. Um, and I had, I had space, um, I had a lot of space again to, to scale up. I mean, I've had studios on and off that I think I, that was after about a year and a half of not having a studio. Um, but but I had I had a big space um, and it sort of like called for making something big and then and then suddenly I had time, so um, yeah, I kind of slowly worked my way back into working with oils on, on canvas, and uh, I just had a show um, in May. Uh, it was a four person show with my gallery, Good Naked. They they found a space up. Uh, they secured a space in Greenpoint. And we had show those up for a month, and I showed three um, big pieces on on canvas, oil oils on can oil paintings on canvas um, that I'd spent about a year working on without showing anyone until you know until that show. Nice. And that's something you want to pursue, you think? Yeah, I mean, I want to I want to keep that going. I want to. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, that's something I want to have as like an ongoing thing. Um, and, and that, that's a whole different game than, you know, with zines and with publications, I, I know I can make something. There's people out there that will, you know, that will, you know, pick it up. They'll like the, the edition will sell people will, people will buy it with, with, uh, with paintings. It's sort of a, it's a different audience and that's a different sort of world. And I've, I've made, big works and shown in, in galleries, uh, on and off, like as a parallel to all this work with printmaking, um, and all the other kinds of work that I've done. Um, but in terms of like, in terms of, you know, getting into that world, you, you need, you need like a liaison, you need like a, someone oh, yeah. who's gonna, who's gonna get it in there. And I've, I've been working with Jacqueline, um, Cedar, who started this gallery, Good Naked, that sort of took off during the pandemic. And, um, she's, she's been able to find, find some homes for, for some of my stuff. So it's, you know, just, um, it would be great to, to increase that and just to, you know, to expand that. But I, I don't think I would ever 
completely switch. And, you know, I think I'll always be um, involved in making kind of more affordable additions and being part of the conversation with, with zines and, and sort of these smaller publications and the, the two sort of feed on each other too, I think. Yeah. And stylistically, I assume you feel kind of comfortable, like you've figured out the visual language you want to use for the rest of your life. Well, I mean, <laughs> is that fair? It's, uh, why? Well, I, I mean, I know that's, I know that's scary too. Yeah. The rest, but of no, life. I mean, a lot of people I interview, it seems like in their thirties, they kind of get the, the foundation figured out Yeah, of the visual style. Yeah. Um, maybe cause I speak to people who I think make visually good art. I can imagine conceptual artists who are more interested in like subverting that here and there. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's a good thing. I think it sounds like a bad thing sometimes, Yeah. but, um, what I mean is the work, you know, there's a consistent visual language that's distinct yes. and I'm assuming you're content and by that, I mean, like, comfortable, content with that visual language. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm, making, I'm making for myself primarily. Like, I, I want to make things because I'm trying to see where it's going to go. And, and it's, it's more of like, it's almost like a, it's, it's a, it's, I'd say it's a cross between like a, a practice, like, um, like a physical practice, like going to the gym, or um, it's a, like a discipline. It's also a bit of a, I don't want to call it a spiritual practice, but it's, it's sort of like a path, you know, it's, it's this thing that you, you keep doing and you sort of follow where it's, where it takes you and you're trying to figure it out, um, as well. Um, I mean, I, I definitely, I want to keep expanding, expanding it and I, I want to, I want it to evolve. It's sort of like you're keeping this thing alive and you want to have, you know, like the work that I did 10 years ago, and the work that I'm doing now, there's, I do see, there is like a connection, there's an evolution. Um, it changes it, it, but I would love to, I've really wanted to sort of see if I can work in earth tones mm. um, or, you know, I, I, I want to like write a graphic novel or, you know, there's a lot of other things I want to do. So I want to keep expanding. Yeah. I was going to say like, you've done a lot, but what do you see ahead I mean, exactly that. I would like to see, I've, I've thought, I've toyed about these different ideas, doing something that's more narrative and that's more specific and that's where I maybe write something, you know, going back to writing, um, which is another, I, I didn't know, you know, there was a point where I didn't know if I was going to be a writer or a visual artist and I, I kind of moved more towards the visual. Um, and I've, I've, I've done comics here and there too, but to do some, some kind of a long form story, I think would be very satisfying. It'd be a lot of work and not a lot of uh, payoff because that's <laughs> comics are just pain. Yeah. And then, you know, like, you know, you put so much work into it and then people read it in like, you know, uh, 30 minutes or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Comics are the, the real, yeah. like, the real gym of totally. drawing. Yeah. Yeah. They're just pain. Yeah. But you learn so quick and so much. And you, mm -hmm. what I what I found was, it forced you to draw things you never want to to draw. Like maybe yeah. maybe a person in like for instance, I didn't really draw people in places for a long time when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, if you're drawing a story, you're like, well, I need to figure out how to draw a background. Yeah, I need to figure out how to draw a city or a forest. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's like the best drawing school you can go to. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'd love to see. I'd be very curious what you would do in a longer format graphic novel. But yeah, that shit takes so long. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd love to like that. I like that idea because it's also could be a jumping off point to something bigger, like a like a you know it could become a movie. But then there's then there's people that say like, well. You know, it's a different thing, and you know, comics is one thing, or the, the purists, or whatever. But um, you could have both. I mean, it's just, just, just. I guess getting stories out there, like, like writing an actual story as opposed to making these images. Um, I don't know. I've done a lot of stuff with installation. It'd be nice to do that again sometime. But um, yeah, I'm right now. I guess I'm. I finished a bunch of big projects, so I'm sort of, I'm sort of in between. I'm trying to figure out what the next thing is. Well, I assume you're about to go to Greece, no? Yeah, in about a month. You know, we're, we're wrapping up the, the... I'm in my summer semester, so I've got another month of... Another five weeks of classes, and then the lab will... Well, I'll leave before the lab shuts down, but then the lab will shut down for a little while. Um, but yeah, I kind of, kind of like, just sort of... It's just a slide, the next five weeks, just a slide to to August, and then and then we'll be on the beach <laughs> for three weeks. And then you can just kind of exhale. It's mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. You never know what you'll take in, really. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you're not concerned with this notion of of um, being a purist, right? Like, you have a very uh, multidisciplinarian approach. No, I mean, yeah, I, I do a lot of things. Um, and I've always, you know, I've wondered, there's been times where I've wondered whether I should just focus on one thing, whether it's like, do I have too many, you know, am I spread too thin? Do I have too many, uh-huh. uh, you know, too many um, kind of pots on the, on the fire. But I think, I think for me uh, it, it works. And I think it's good because I can, they all relate to each other and they all support each other. And one leads to another, even though people get confused, you know, people uh, mm-hmm. like when they found out I, I, I was, um, I was having a show. They were like, "Oh, so are you switching more towards the gallery world now?" I was like, "Well, I've always shown in galleries, like, um, you know, I've, I've uh, or, you know, I'll, I'll do, yeah. People, you know, some people know this aspect of of what I do. Some people know a different aspect of what I do. Um, but I think that it it all comes down to like the image. It's either a drawing, or it's it's either drawing or color or collage." um and maybe filtered through some kind of a print um medium and i like sort of scaling that up and down and there's a lot of um so i i did a talk uh a couple months ago at the at this artist book conference at at bu and um you know i i tried to i tried to make connections between images in my zines and you know the paintings that they that they came from like you know zines where there might be a, a face but that was actually a Rizzo, um, sort of a, a CMYK print of a, of a painting that was also shown in this exhibition. Or mm-hmm. this drawing was, um, you know, published in a zine, but then I took the same drawing and I printed it on a giant banner, uh, screen printed on, on a banner. And sort of how the, the work um, jumps from different mediums and jumps from project to project and sort of gets recycled. Um, so that that keeps it fresh for me that i just sort of like take images and just sort of like compost them into the next project 
um, you know, and, and just... That's an interesting way to put it, composting. Yeah. I like that. It makes sense. It's another thing I often think about. It's just like... Uh, I, I'm kind of trying to understand what's the natural mode of making. Mm-hmm. You know, is would it be a forced type of careerism to just do one thing really, really well? Or is there just different personalities? Like, I'm sure that there's certain comic book artists who just wanted to work on one book their whole life, you know, and they could do it and they could do it. I wouldn't say in a happy way, but in like a fulfilled way. And I don't know how much it's a choice. You know, if you're like kind of a multidisciplinarian i don't know how much you can turn that off even if it's more beneficial financially to do one thing yeah no no i i I agree i think i think it's a question of of personality and same thing with style too like there's people who work and you talked about you know my style and whether it's at a point where i'm happy with it i think if anything like the core of my you know the style sort of I, i think i figured it out um by the time i was like 22 or 23 that's when it sort of like gelled for me and everything since has been a different has been a crystallization or a different form of that or an expansion of that honestly um but were, then, you, were you happy with it then that's oh, kind yeah. of a, that's an yeah. amazing i feel like it's an amazingly rare accomplishment in some sense because i think a lot of people don't like their work in their 20s yeah and they're like just trying to fight through and then maybe in their 30s 40s etc they can look back or look at their work today and be like, I actually enjoy what I'm making. No, I mean, I mean, for me, like if, if I didn't like what I was making, it was, it was painful. So, mm-hmm. so it was like, it hurt me to make something that I didn't like. So I, I think throughout art school, because I was, it felt like such a huge sacrifice, financial sacrifice to be living in New York and to be going to this very expensive private art school with like, you know, taking out big loans and very minimal help from, you know, my family and just, you know, um, that I, I didn't, I didn't want to waste a second of it. So I was like constantly, just constantly pumping stuff out. And, and it was sort of like what I thrived on. So I kind of like plowed through a bunch of different styles. Like I went through a a very, a phase where I was just making like 50 very messy sumi ink drawings every day because you know I, I was like looking at early keith herring stuff and thinking about him being in new york in the 70s and like you know being kind of like upset about living in like giuliani's sort of cleaned up new york in the early 2000s because i had all these visions of new york from you know, all my favorite and all these artists that i loved were and musicians were there when it was like a falling apart ruin you know and so but i was so i went through that phase and then i kind of got that out of my system and then i went through philip gustin phase and eventually <laughs> so i was always sort of doing i was trying to make what i liked what i liked in other artists work and and i was always trying to please myself um but um but i guess you know what I was about to say with the the style thing is, um, you know, there's, there's people who can work in many different styles and, you know, I, that's a huge, I mean, I could force myself to, but it would, it would hurt a lot and it would not look good. Like I have to, I have to work and I have a, I have a, my style as a range, I guess I have different ways of making, but it always sort of looks like me, you know, I have, I have different sort of, it's always, it's 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 not like different styles it's like a hydra where it's just different heads coming right, from the right. same snake it's not different mm-hmm. snakes you know what i mean it's not mm-hmm. different, it's not different monsters but some people can some people have different 
can work in they can mimic many different styles like a good friend of mine ray sohn he could like work in many different styles and um you know i think sometimes those people sometimes wish they could um like you know i don't want to uh, i don't know how he felt about it he's, he's a good friend great artist sort of left um left uh comics and and printmaking and art to become a developer so like like a lot of artists i know kind of got scooped up into the tech world um and a good, he's still a good friend but um you know people who can work in a lot of in different many different styles it's like they it's always a sort of like a grasses grasses greener scenario where people who have can only make work that looks like their own work wish they could also Totally. other people's styles so you know we don't you're right it's like you don't really have a choice same thing with doing different kinds of things i have a lot of different kind of interests. i have a lot of different interests i have a lot of different things i want to i want to do uh in my life beyond outside of my art practice and i, I think just doing a lot of different things is just always going to be part of part of what i spend my time doing so i, I can't help it i'm kind of curious if you could describe the transition from putting on these different artist hats you know, literally like the Gustin face, the mm -hmm. Herring face. Yeah. Do you remember the last artist that you were trying to put on before you got to where you got? Or was it like a, like, was it subtle transition or was it like a very sudden one? I think it's pretty, I think it was pretty subtle, but I think the, the way, I think it all clicked together for me when I got into screen printing somehow. I think like, you know, cause, because, you know, there was a crumb phase, like when I was in, I think even when I was in, I guess, maybe early years of college, you know, maybe um, like crumb and then different underground cartoonists, um, Doug Allen phase, you know, like uh, Gary Lieb and Doug Allen, uh, who did this comic Idiot Land was a big influence on me when I when I found that when I was like 17 or something at like an underground bookstore. Um but but yeah, I'm not sure. And then I discovered Fort Thunder and Paper Rad and and Brian Chippendale. And I think like I looked at so many different. Uh, but I was also looking at I was also like looking at like the Aztecs and and the Mayans and looking at pre-Columbian stuff and ancient art and outsider art and you know Henry Darger and just like looking at everything. You gotta you know actually I saw um, to Gary Panter who um, he's actually uh, I haven't seen him in years but. Um, he i had him as a professor when i was in school and uh you know we we stayed we stayed friendly at you know we stayed kind of friends outside of after i graduated and i haven't seen him in a while but um he said something at a talk once where um he was just into so many different things like he had so many different influences that that um that like no one could really tell who he was ripping off or um, <laughs> yeah, referencing. Yeah. So that's the thing. You just, you just like, if you pull from so many different sources initially um, and, you know, of course, when you're like a student, your work is going to look exactly like what you're looking at. Like I had a student last year who was making beautiful, delicate sci-fi drawings, but I looked at his work and I was like Mobius, you know what I mean? Immediately, yep. you know, I, I knew exactly what he was looking at. And like, you just have to, you just have to, you got to look at, you got to spice it up with some different influences. And if you combine it in a way, you, you know, it's going to look like Mobius for a while, but you get it, eventually you get it out of your system and it looks like you, you just, you digest it and it becomes a part of you. And that's whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's a good place to start. Mobius. You know? Yeah. It's funny because I would have thought it's interesting to hear your influences. I think of like Giacometti and Hans Ernie and these more like high yeah. art, uh, 
people. So it's kind of cool to hear more about the underground comics thing as being yeah. a, th- a thread from the beginning. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what kept, that was, that's why I got so into printmaking. Cause I remembered all the, all the stuff that I, all the culture that I had to like dig up. I had to go to different physical. I mean, you could, I mean, I'm, I'm a little older. So like uh, the, you know, I was going online and stuff, but like, you know, you sort of, it was a mix of like finding stuff online and finding stuff, you know, like finding stuff in a, in a box in the back of this musty secondhand, you know, bookstore, yeah, this bookstore and just like stumbling upon these, you know, same thing with records too. Like, um, you had to go out and dig for stuff. Um, you couldn't just, I don't think there was Google. I think there was search.com, but it was, was not, there just wasn't, you know, like the internet was this other thing. The internet was like a zine actually. It was like just this DIY thing, like people's like janky homemade websites. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, someone, uh, so Jacqueline, um, Jacqueline Cedar from good, good naked, who she's been kind of, you know, representing my stuff for a couple of years now. Um, she, she mentioned Oscar Schlemmer, who was the guy, he was one of the members of the Bauhaus. He was the guy that designed the logo of that, the, the face. And I didn't really know his work. I sort of was like, who's that? And then she was like, oh, he's the guy who, you know, he's more the Bauhaus. And I looked him up. I was like, oh, he, he designed all the costumes of the Bauhaus ballet. And then I looked mm-hmm. at his work and he, he made all these like faces and figures. And I saw the connection, but I hadn't really seen him before. So I got really into his work recently, but um, not so much, I guess these days, I don't think I, I guess, I guess the difference between now and, you know, I guess 20 years ago when I was in, when I was in art school was, um, you know, when I look at something I really like, I don't always, it, it doesn't immediately like show up in my work the next day. You know what I mean? It's more like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I might, I might make a different move in re- response to that, but you know, that's like making a friend in high school who, <laughs> suddenly influences the way you dress or talk or something you're yeah. not gonna you're not gonna meet someone at 40 and be yeah i hope not <laughs> I, don't, I don't think most fully formed adults um are that reactive yeah so it's just a reflection of that that stage of maturity and also that kind of tragedy of like uh, me i've mentioned this all the time but miyazaki like when he saw Mobius's work, he had kind of already figured out his style. So mm-hmm. he kind of lamented the fact that he couldn't take in more of it. Mm, mm, he was yeah, just like, well, that's the phase, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a really good, yeah, that's, that's a, that is tragic. I mean, um, yeah, well, well, now that you've mentioned that and your question about whether it's going to be my style for the rest of my life, I guess I don't have a choice um, unless I like, <laughs> if I hit my head, like if I like, if I like fall off my bike or something, or if I get in a car accident, I have like a traumatic brain injury, then, then I guess you get a second chance or and you could just make radically different, or, but I guess anyone can just decide to, but I don't think, you I don't know. think you can, like I've, I've done experiments, like trying to not be myself when drawing. Yeah. And if you make enough drawings in that mode, you just end up back in the same place. It's very yeah. weird. Yeah, like like I guess one thing is my colors. Like I some I have a love hate thing with the colors that I like to use because it's even from high school. I was when I started using color, um, you know, I I immediately gravitated toward to these towards these really uh, vibrant neons and garish combinations. And my uh, 
you know, my, my painting teacher was like, um, or my, my art teacher who was colorblind, uh, he, he, you know, he could see a very limited spectrum, but he said, um, you know, he, he, he really liked my work, but he said like, um, you know, great work, but you know, maybe when you get to art school, you could like take a color theory class. Um, and I mean, you know, I don't think my palette's changed that much since then. I think if anything, it got a bit more refined and I figured some stuff out about color with printmaking because you can only, ch actually what it was, was I took a class first foundation, foundation year of, um, of art school. I took a class with this grizzled old painting teacher who was, he was like, a. uh, I would say not like a greatest generation. He was sort of like a little too young to fight in World War II, but he came to New York when he was 16, like ran away from home and moved to New York and like lived in a, um, in a, like a loft in Soho that only had cold water, um, for 40 bucks a month. And he just wanted to be an artist. And he, you know, he, um, he was just, just this, he was always like, you gotta move your ass. Um, <laughs> what does and, that mean? Uh, just like you got to work basically like yeah, you gotta, yeah. like, work because i was like you got to move your ass you know he's like very like uh you know just all about just just doing it and um <laughs> and and he gave us but he studied at black mountain college under joseph albers like he took joseph albers color theory class and so he gave us all the homework assignments that joseph, joseph albers gave him which was like the first half the first semester we just every single assignment was like our, our homework we had i mean we did we made a couple of big paintings but in in addition to that every week for homework we had to we had to like um stretch a canvas like stretch a canvas you know it's uh with a stretch a square canvas um make a grid and it was like we were just painting these grids and and you had one set of colors based on specific instructions going along the top and then you would mix them you know and then a different set of colors whether it was like you know, you're, you're mixing all the colors that you, you know, all the colors that you had to, to buy for the class for the first assignment and then seeing how they mixed or, um, you know, you had to add yellow to each one along the top and add a different color along the bottom. And, and so there was a lot of this sort of like limited palette work that I think also, um, was was a big uh i think that was sort of important ended up being kind of important because i i had to figure out how color worked and then also with printmaking you, you you only have so many colors you can work with so the more colors you add the more work it is so you're like how can i be economical um but those bright colors i sometimes just get nauseated at my palette and i just want to i'm like this is just ugh, i can't even you know and i want to just go to monochrome or just paint in brown but um you know i always come back to it because it feels good you know, it feels good to look at. Yeah, it's, um, no, I definitely understand what you're saying with screen printing, limiting the palette. You kind of want to get as much as you can out of the colors. You know, if you only got three, you're going to make them pop. You're going to make them loud. Yeah. I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, and it's powerful. You know, it's like it grabs people's, I like image power. You know, I want the image to, you know, just affect people. Yeah, it's like that poster language, comic language. Yeah. It's supposed to be in some ways garish, I think. Mm -hmm. That's where it's born out of. Yeah. I actually never somehow heard of this uh, Oscar Schlemmer. Yeah, so you look him up. I'm about to go deep into that right now. Yeah. He's great. Um, I actually read his... Uh, 
I read his, well, this is a little creepy, but um, <laughs> they, you know, I don't, like, uh, he had his, I guess his wife had his diary, no, his, his letters and writings published. So um, I read, I read his collected letters and, and, and diaries. Uh, kind of a tragic story. He, he died at the end of, right before World War II ended but he kind of was forced to stop making art by the nazis because he was part of this the bauhaus group and he kept having to like you know move like leave berlin because you know there's a lot of political pressure on um on all those artists and um, it's horrible yeah yeah people can't even comprehend that kind of shit it's fucking crazy it's so it's wild yeah and then to almost make it it's just uh... yeah well on that note uh it's good talking to you yeah it's been great and do you mind plugging your various well quick question is Riza lab like do you print works for no no no, no. we do That's not right. we offer right. classes you you can yeah we have classes open to the public so Rizo lab um it's the Rizo uh Rizzo Studio that I co-founded and that I run at the School of Visual Arts, um, and I teach a zine class there. We also have classes, and that, that one's open to the public. It's a continuing education class. I also teach an undergrad class there that's only for SVA students. Um, but we have five different continuing ed classes. We've got a artist book class taught by Aidan Fitzgerald, who is uh, the mm-hmm. founder of Cold Q Press, who just moved out from Seattle about a year ago. We got... Um, a comics class taught by Ren McDonald. Uh, and there's another class taught by Andrew Alexander, who uh, Andy Alexandy, who just mm-hmm. he just launched Cram Books. He's a great cartoonist and artist. Um, teaches a drawing based class. So that's the space I run and I teach there. I, I run the space. You know, I'm there on and off like throughout the week. Um, and you can also find you can find my work at um, on Instagram at underscore P-P-P-A-N-N-N underscore and also Megapress um, at M-M-E-G-A-P-R-E-S-S um, and also, you know, I've got, you know, you can find links to websites for Megapress where you can you can find all, find all the zines and um, prints and, and everything that we have. You can order through our website. Also, a lot of our distributors have our work. Um, and and yeah, I guess that those are all the different places. My own studio practice, Megapress, which is like a broader platform where I publish other people too, and then the Rezo space that I run at SVA. All right. So. Well, good talking to you. And uh, we should catch up sometime. Definitely. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Music by Dory Bavarsky and Ming Chen. Next up, we have Bill McWright. See you then.